Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Uh, really excited this episode to have Sanket Pathak. Sanket, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So uh, Synapse is a really fascinating company. Um, I, I was going to quote the numbers, but I realized you guys are growing so fast, whatever numbers I quoted are probably going to be outdated. Um, why don't we do this? Why don't we start with like what it means to build fintech infrastructure for everyone else and, and exactly what you guys do? And then uh, I would love to cover some of the stats you guys have hit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so high level, we are a uh, banking as a service provider based in the U.S. Uh, uh, we started doing this business before the segment name even existed. So uh, we weren't called banking as a service provider. We were just called uh, uh, this company who has APIs for banking. Uh, uh, it, what what people do with us, uh, if you're if you're a developer based in the U.S. or abroad and you want to build uh, U.S. Uh, financial services products for either U.S.-based individuals or people who don't even live in the U.S., uh, we enable you to be able to open up deposit accounts, credit accounts, crypto accounts, issue cards, um, do automated savings, all these different things. Uh, we're actually... Based on all public numbers, we can we can scavenge. We're actually the largest bass player um, based in the U.S. Uh, we were in uh, Inc. 5000 uh, this year, for instance. We were about um, about 1,339, ninth fastest growing American company in 92nd on the financial services segment. Let, let's talk about this. Be, you know, being in the top 100 fastest growing financial services companies in the country, right? Um, can you tell us, like, how many users, how many companies, so, some of these kind of numbers that are public? Yeah, close to 200 plus fintech companies now uh, that build on top of Synapse. Uh, uh, we've, we've crossed over like 10 million end users that we serve through the platform, uh, uh, processing significant volume uh, through, through our entire infrastructure. Like, I believe the last numbers were, uh, were close to like, I think over 70 billion in annualized processing run rate. Uh, on transactions and yeah, I think like over 10 billion or so in deposits. So um, growing quite quickly, super excited about all the customers that build on top of us. Yeah. So um, I know that I know the numbers are crazy these days and valuations are all over the place. So we'll, we'll talk about like last year, <laughs> you know, so arguably past that unicorn status, uh, valuation over a billion, kind of you look if you look at the multiples of last year's revenue, is that is that fair to say? Yeah, uh, we had done some, uh, we had looked at some independent analysis on this, and it seemed like uh, based on where the multiples for last year would have been probably over a billion, uh, given everything that's gone on in the market. And I will admit, I really used to care about the valuations at one point. Uh, and I just don't now. I don't know. Things have changed for me this year. Like, uh, uh, I've to me the most valuable thing right now is kind of like building this second phase of Synapse, which uh, is focused around giving people who don't have safe access to financial services products, especially outside of the U.S., uh, access to U.S. rails. There's high inflation, uh, high taxation, high instability. Uh, for instance, Sri Lanka, uh, people who lived there lost all of their savings. Um, so I thought hard about like, kind of what I want to do, and I want to do things that help people. And are, I'm an engineer at heart, so are cool to do. So uh, I care less about the valuation piece. I care about us having somewhat of an impact on 
and global financial services and giving everybody access to safe and equitable financial products, which is now like the second wave. So now we focus on the global side more than, you know, don't care well, about the valuation piece less now. <laughs> and, and arguably, that's probably a large reason why you actually got to those kind of levels is caring about the customer more than the than the vanity metrics or the, you know, the accolades. Is that a fair guess? Yeah, I don't I don't think I'm a reformed person. I think I'm like equally vain like everybody else. Uh, but I've I, I, uh, the the trend goal is that I've gotten less and less vain over time. So I care about these things less and less and I care about uh, the impact and just wanting to do good, things that help people a little bit more. I feel like that's that's a better way to live. Yeah. And so um, how many years, how many years from, when, when did you start it? About eight years ago. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to talk about um, some of the things, you know, $70 billion in processing over, you know, servicing over 10 million clients for, for all these groups that you help with their products. And uh, you know, I love the way you've described it in the past, this idea of like, we want to make it so that you don't have to know everything about business and fintech to to provide a better financial experience to your customers. Can you can you talk about that concept? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, this is the power of platforms generally, right? So uh, the general teeth has always exist. The more complexity you will reduce, the more people you will impact, right? So uh in our case, uh, the domain we focus on is fintech. Uh, and apology, my dog behind. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, I've been from the very beginning very clear about this. The vision of Synapse has been uh, how can we provide deposit, credit, and investment product uh, as an infrastructure solution and make it so easy that you have to know nothing about financial services to be able to embed it? Because behind that, there's a belief, which is the easier we're going to make. Uh, uh, embedding and scaling financial services, uh, the more de facto it's going to become, right? Like even Elon was talking about issuing uh, money market funds and debit cards for Twitter. Like we think that is the future. We think over time, financial services would get embedded in all the platforms, but that won't happen unless we make it very easy to embed and very easy. So um, I remember somebody uh, was interviewing once and said something about like, so you're telling me I could I could replace I could make my own version of Chase Bank? You're like, well, with a little bit of knowledge, you could make something better than Chase within like a month. Can you talk about yeah. why that's possible? So if you take the components of what a Chase checking account is, a Chase checking account is a bucket where you put money in various payment protocols that you can pull money in and out of, and a card issued on top of it that people can use for convenience. And you can connect your payroll and things like that. Um and over the course of the last like eight years, what we've done is um, we've just made that really easy. You just have APIs available for this, just like how you would if you wanted to build two-factor authentication with Trulio or like embed some Facebook SDK into your application. So it's super easy. You pick up those APIs, you put them together. Uh, uh, our customers still have to worry about building the interface and worrying about financial fraud. Like we're not at a point where we help with those two things just yet. Uh, but that's where I want to get to. I want to be able to get to a place where our customers also don't have to worry about fraud. But if you're, uh, it used to be a few years ago before Synapse existed, you have to be very sophisticated in financial services to be able to build these products and it would take you years to do so. Uh, now you have to be low to moderately sophisticated in financial services, have some 
appreciation for compliance, uh, know that you're going to have to deal with financial fraud and build out an interface and a customer support channel. Uh, but the barrier to entry is very low, right? So you can do a lot of those things in the course of a month, month and a half. Uh, and we think like when I came to America, I could not open up a checking account with any bank. Like it was very hard. I had to go into a bank branch and prove that I was here. And now we're at a place where you can download almost any FinTech app and you can open up an account even if you have no credit history. Uh, so I think, I think the, the, the Chase problems behind us. I think people have already built products that are far, far better than Chase. And I think, I feel like the second inning is how do you now expand uh, uh, the reach of a product like that to people who don't even live here as well and give everyone same comfort and stability that people in America have gotten pretty used to around financial services. I kind of want to go a, a, take a little bit of a right turn here. Okay. Yeah. So um, through these series that I've done, uh, I decided we're going to transcribe some of these episodes into some short books. So I'm doing the, the plan right now is doing one of all the founders who've been on the show who've grown from zero over a billion. And then there's like a, there's like an absurd number of those people who grew up in India. So then I'm going to do another book. And like, and I've had lots of other just exceptional folks from India. Uh, do you know Ram Charan, um, the yes. author? Uh, you know, just like these these folks that have just like become my heroes after like reading their books or interviewing them on the show and getting to know them. So I think we're going to do another book called like I don't know, we're called like Incredible Indians or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to pay you both these books. Okay, <laughs> uh, where, where in India did you grow up? Rajasthan, Ajmer, Rajasthan. Okay. It's like the I've northwest heard... of India. Northwest. Okay. Um, what advantages do you think you have because of growing up where you grew up with the circumstances you grew up with? I think I had a very strong STEM foundation. Uh, really good with maths, really good with physics, um, really good with computer science. Um, and that really enabled me to have like get really good at consuming information very quickly. So like, I don't, I don't know everything, but usually I'm able to learn pretty quickly, uh, uh, especially kind of like complicated abstract concepts that are scientific in nature. Uh, maybe like I'm stubborn as a human and I don't learn human things as quickly, but like the, like the, the scientific principles I learned, like I learned relatively quickly. I think that has a lot to do with the education system that I grew up with in India. Uh, it was very focused around math, science, physics, um, and we could not take cheat sheets to uh, to to our tests. Um, and I didn't have like a really good memory to be able to just cram everything in it. So I had to always learn how to derive formulas because I would do it as a part of taking a test, and I didn't really rely on my memory generally. I would just rely on understanding. Um, so I think that foundation really helped. Um, uh, and then coming to America, and this is something my brother always says whenever I'm down and I talk to him and I'm like, what if kind of like nothing exists and I fail? And he's like, uh, do you remember we had summers when we did not buy tomatoes because they were very expensive? He's like, you're going to be okay. It's changing to <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, so I think the... I think the appetite of being able to go down and vary down is like, okay, because uh, when I came to America, uh, buying Xbox was a luxury. That was the first time I, I could experience buying something like that. I could never comprehend having it. Um, so I think a combination of both of those, we're living in, we're living in an age where technology uh, uh, is 
like in its renaissance and it's the next frontier. So when you, when you get really good in technology, you usually move ahead fast. Um, and then having a slightly high uh, appetite for risk, um, I think is kind of like a good combination generally. And I suspect that's, I've, I've thought about the Indian thing as well. And I suspect those two things are, uh, probably fairly common, um, uh, I think those two are fairly common denominators and then it helps that like, uh, English is, uh, uh, like, like a second language in India, it's spoken, um, quite frequently across the region. So when you come to America, it's easier to assimilate and communicate and go from there. So I think a combination of all those three probably help. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about this idea of knowing you can survive, even if, tom if tomatoes are too expensive to buy. I remember, um, I, I know this is not the same scenario, but I remember I dropped out of school, got married during finals week, and we moved to Huntington Beach, California, because that's where I heard the best surfing was. We had one month's worth of rent paid on our studio apartment, no job, and we had a car trouble. So when we got there, we only had 30 bucks. And so my wow. father-in-law gave me a couple hundred bucks, and we lived on like you know, dollar hamburgers from Carl's Jr. and like 25 cent pies from Albertsons. And we just surfed every day until I could get a, you know, a terrible sales job selling cell phones. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, and then in my 20s, a couple of times made a lot, lost it all, made a lot, lost it all. And then I became a devotee of Warren Buffett and my compound interest investing. Right? <laughs> but um, it does feel like a little bit of advantage to go like, oh, I really don't want to lose it all again. And we would survive. Like we, you don't actually die. It just sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah. That's, that's the way I think about it. How do you think about it? How would you say it differently or how do you explain it? I think there are two components to failure that are, uh, anxiety inducing. Um, the first one is obviously the material wealth, which I think is easier to get over. It's, it, it's okay. You, you, you're used to living with a lot and you're used to living with a little. If you've had it like a background like that, in your case, it seems like you have as well. And that's fine. Like, uh, uh, I know that I, I can eat like a Taco Bell bean burrito like seven days a week and I'll live because I've done it. It's a buck and I'll live on a buck. It's fine. Um, I think the, the one that is, uh, especially people who have generally had it uh, uh, academically easier all of their lives or other things, right? Like school was not extremely hard for me. So to me, uh, uh, the bigger mental barrier is failure representing me not being good at something. Um, and I think that is, that is the hard one. Um, and I'd heard someone say this a few years ago and it kind of like stuck with me, which was if you want to get really good at something, you have to, you have to be okay with being bad at it for a bit, like, because that's the only way you're going to get there. Um, and I've gotten to a place now where I'm like, it's okay. Like if, like, if I, if I'm bad at something, I'm bad at something, it's fine. Uh, I know that I can keep on trying and get better over time. And, uh, the question I ask myself is, am I willing to put in the work to get better at something? And if the answer is yes, then some of the fear goes away because you know, financially, even if you go down all the way. It's fine. You can survive it. And uh, uh, I have accumulated so many of my skills over time that I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to keep on getting better and keep on compounding my skill set. And uh, I will I will be really good at one point. And then I think that removes some of the second fear as well. But I empathize with both. Like I've also had friends who grew up uh, 
in a family where money was sometimes more and sometimes less and that created the sense of anxiety, uh, which is like, we wanted to make sure we had enough money. Uh, for me and my brother, it had an opposite effect. We were like, well, we've lived uh, with nothing and we've lived with a lot and it's okay. Uh, so I am, so I kind of see like both of the perspectives, it really comes down to kind of like what you want to do with your life. And then you pick one or the other. Um, but yeah, I think to me, the sense of loss of is more so represent, oh, I'm not good yet, but that's okay. I've gotten comfortable with that, which is even if I'm not good yet, I will get better if I keep on. I love that perspective. Um, you know, uh, and this kind of this series, you know, for this zero to billion book that I'm working and um, I've been asking some kind of standard questions, but then I also really like to hear different questions. When you think about entrepreneurs listening today, if you had any advice uh, for, for principles that matter, if one of us is trying, you know, we're, we're like, it's not just wishful thinking, like we're genuinely willing to put in the work to go from zero to a billion. What are some of those lessons that you think the rest of us could learn? Unless you're extremely lucky, th like this job is hard. Uh, so you're going to have to you're going to have to look inward to see if you really, really care about what you're doing. Um, and sometimes that's the only thing that's going to motivate you. So, uh, you, you should really think about like what really matters to you and what is it that you really share about and then apply yourself to that. So like, if you, if you don't really care about something you're working on, you don't feel really passionate about it. Uh, you're going to have a miserable life because it's sometimes it's going to get really hard and you're going to. It's not going to be fun. So I think the, the first thing I tell friends or uh, people who usually ask me this question is uh, work on something that you're really passionate about, which is say you are willing to, you're kind of willing to say, I don't care if I'm rich or poor. If I work on this, I would be happy. Um, and if that's how you feel, then you should go for it. Because like in, in, in most cases, even then you might not succeed. And uh, uh, you might have to try multiple times sometimes to succeed. Uh, uh, within one company or within multiple companies, it doesn't matter. People have to just like, we make, we make a lot of mistakes and we get better from it and then learn and learn and learn. Um, but you only do that if you have passion. So like, I feel like that's probably the single biggest, most important thing. If you feel really passionate about it, you'll keep at it. You'll keep getting better and you'll get to that goal. And if like a billion dollars is what it represents for people, that's great. But I think there has to be something higher uh, that they care about to really put themselves through. Uh, what is a very grueling exercise uh, most of the time. So Okay. I love it. Lesson number one. Okay. What's another one? I think the second big thing is, uh, and this is, this kind of gets controversial because uh, um, as a CEO, your job is to like hire the best people you can find. Um, but at the same time, I truly believe your job is also to become an expert in whatever industry you're really working in because, um, I, I feel like it's exceptionally important if you're really a founder led company, uh, for, for the, for the founder to have like a really clear vision as to where to take the business and, uh, that usually comes from expertise. So whatever it is you, you feel passionate about, be willing to learn a lot very quickly and like kind of just like dive deep. So subject matter expertise matters a whole lot. Um, I think the third thing that matters a whole lot, try to get good at hiring and building great teams early. Uh, that is one of the biggest mistakes people make, um, which is they don't learn as quickly as they need to how to build and scale teams. Like, I think that is, that is one of the harder things, um, that most, most entrepreneurs have to learn in, 
in some cases, you'd learn that with coaches. In some cases, you'd learn that with friends who are founders. Um, but that's kind of like the third big thing, which is learn how to build and scale teams very quickly, learn how to build the right culture very quickly. Um, and if you do those three things well, uh, and you're, you have good product market fit in like a large market, then scaling becomes much, much easier. Uh, but those three things I feel like are fundamentally the foundations of whatever it is that you're really working on. Okay. I am so excited that you named these things without me bringing them up because they're the same things that get brought up over and over when I talk to oh. folks who've done what you've done. So vision, like becoming the CEO, like continually working on yourself, recruiting the best team, having like genuine product market fit in a, in a market that's big enough. Okay, so let's, let's take these one at a time. Um, so this idea of true expertise that you can make, you know, base a vision on, on genuine expertise and, and, um, and also I'm interested in your thoughts of like what that looks like at higher and higher levels. Like you, you hear all these stories about founders that get replaced by their VCs because they're like, oh, you were good enough to get us to this point. Now we need somebody with the next skill set to go above. And, and then there are those founders that work on themselves and continue to grow their expertise and continue to be the right guy at the next decimal point evaluation and the next decimal point and the next decimal point, and they do make it. Um, so let's start with this. What, what, what's a principle for CEOs or founders who are saying, I, I want to really have that genuine expertise that Sanket is talking about, and I'm willing to put in the time to continually grow that as we grow the business. Do you have any guidance on how to do that or how to approach that? Yeah. Well, um, before that, I'd put in a disclaimer that I'm also figuring it out as I go. Um, like I think most people are. Uh, but yes, I think there are, there are high level general principles. Um, numbers don't lie. So at the core of it, probably pick metrics that genuinely represent growth for the business. Uh, in, in most cases, it's revenue. It's not something else. Uh, so pick, pick, pick metrics that legitimately represent growth in your business. Um, and then don't try to think what you need to be when the company is like $100 million in revenue or $50 million in revenue or a billion dollars in revenue. Think what, what needs to happen in the business, being intellectually honest over the course of the next year or two for you to be able to reach those goals. Um, and what I found, the people that I really appreciate are the ones who can communicate a vision years out quite well, but then can also break them down into very quantifiable goals and then can set and chart a course on execution on those quantifiable goals. And um, in most cases, your time as the CEO is better spent if you hire the right people to help you execute on those pieces versus trying to execute all of that yourself. Um, and if you can do that really well, you can one, come up with a vision and a plan that is really long lasting and can really uh, like shoot up into the future in a positive way, can break down what does that really look like for the company in the next six, 12, 18, 24 months, build an execution plan, which in most cases requires having a really good team and just keep on going at it. You autopilot your learning. You'll, you'll know what business issues you're going to run into on a constant basis. You'll seek advice. You'll try to get better at those. You'll solve those problems. Uh, and you'll be able to quantify actually getting to the goal you really want to get to in the next five years and break it down. Uh, so I don't know if there's like anything 
nebulously secretive about this other than the fact that like numbers don't lie, data doesn't lie, pick the right metric, be intellectually honest about how do you get from A to B and explain that to yourself, make sure you're communicating that to your team, um, make sure everybody's aligned and rowing in the same direction, hire the be best people who you can to be able to help you get there and just keep on going. And then over time, those results just compound because at some point you're solving the problem of how do I go from zero to 1 million, then from 1 million to 5 million, from 5 million to 10 million, 10 million to 50 million and so on and so on. Um, then you keep on growing. Uh, uh, why founder-led companies usually have an edge over a non-founder-led company? Because usually founder starts with like a vision of, hey, this is what I'm really trying to get to. And it takes them years to get there. And if they can really make sure that they can execute on all these tactical things to be able to compound the effects, mostly you end up building generationally defining really good companies. Uh, um, but if the founder is unable to do that, which is like 6, 12, 18, 24 month execution, uh, it's in their best interest to either find a CEO who can or and like just that's when sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes also things don't work out because other people are legitimately wrong. They fought the founder, that is. Um, uh, but in some cases, the harsh reality also is like if you're unable to really execute on the vision you've laid out, that's that. Like that's kaput right there. Oh, I really like that. So, uh, there's so many questions I have because of that, but I'll, I'll stick to two right off the bat. Um, you talked about this idea of the founder needing to be intellectually honest to make these assessments. And um, I'm interested for those of us who want to enhance that capability in ourselves. Are there any things you ask yourself? Are there any things you do to question, am I being as intellectually honest as I could be? How can I become more objective? Like, what, what do you do when it comes to that? I've only come up with one way, which is I have to have an owner mindset, which is all the failures are at the end of the day, my responsibility and the success at the end of the day is my responsibility. So if that's the case, no one's going to come to save me, <laughs> come to save your business. Uh, what do I need to do to make sure we survive and we thrive and we succeed? Um, I think sometimes people become employees of their company versus like have the ownership mindset. And when you're kind of like an employee of the company, then things can go wrong that are not in your control and you're okay with that. Uh, and that's when some of the intellectual dishonesty seeps in. Uh, so the framework that I found to be helpful, and it's like probably the most extreme out of all is I'm it. Like, I have to do the right thing where the right thing wouldn't happen. Um, and what does that right thing really look like? In most cases, it comes down to like making sure the business is healthy, it's growing, uh, and that it's executing on its long-term goal. Um, and for it, for it to be healthy and growing, you look at your revenue, you look at your gross margins, you look at kind of like diversification of your revenue lines, like all these different things. And those numbers are not dishonest. Like they're very straightforward. They're black and white. Uh, you put them in front of you. Um, um, and that part's hard to get to. Sometimes people really focus on, um, because it feels comfortable. Hey, we're signing a lot of contracts or, uh, a lot of web, uh, we have a lot of web visitors coming in. We have a massive implementation pipeline, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all these different things. And it really comes down to like, you, 
if you're not going to do it, no one else is going to do it. So what are the metrics you need to look at to make sure your business is successful? Because it's just that straightforward. It's your business. And if you have to make it successful, you have to look at the right stuff. Because if you're sleepwalking through that, the likelihood is that others are too. That's the framework that really like helps me. Um, and I still make mistakes. I still sometimes pick metrics that I was like, ah, that wasn't the right number to really look at. I should have looked at that all along. And that's fine because you always learn and you get better. Um, but that's, that's the only thing that's really helping, which is like absolute ownership. I love that answer. Uh, the next, the next question I want to bring up, um, you talked about advisors. Uh, my, my first thought is when it comes to selecting advisors, what, what are some principles that, that you would recommend? One, you need to be able to trust them. Uh, you need to feel like you have an element of psychological safety and a high level of trust into what they say. Uh, so you have to pick the person or people that you'd really have that with. Uh, then the second thing is pretty straightforward. Um, uh, they've walked the steps you've walked. So they're like just a little ahead than you've been uh, so that uh, your journey is fresh in their mind enough that they can relate and give you sound advice. Um, uh, while also they're not living it with you right then and there that they, they're also trying to figure out the same steps that you are. Uh, and I think there is... Uh, there's advisors that are very helpful and there are peers that are very helpful. Peers that would be sobering in the sense that, okay, I'm not the only one who's going through this. And that's helpful. And the advisors are really helpful because they're like, yeah, two years ago, I went through this. This is what it looked like. These are all things we tried. This is what we failed at. This is what we succeeded at. And then what I found is sometimes people really go for advisors that are like, okay, someone was really made it. And what essentially happens is that like, and this is also true for me, like I don't really remember every single thing that went right or wrong in the last five years. So like I have a very different picture in my head because I am somewhere else now. Um, and those people are good to talk to because like they have a perspective that's very interesting and helpful. Uh, um, but in most cases, I found it to be helpful to find advisors who are just a few steps ahead of me uh, so that it's very fresh in their memory, this whole navigation that they've done. Um, and there is a toss up and I, and I, and I haven't really made up my mind on how important them being in your industry is. Like, I think in some cases it is, and in some cases it doesn't matter. So like, I personally look for these two things first, which is I can really trust them and they're, they're a few steps ahead of me um, so that it's fresh in their memory while still they've navigated their way out. Okay. I love that answer. Uh, it leads to my next question though. Of, I'm interested, to me, sometimes I think of it like a balance beam of like, um, customers and advisors and peers and friends on this side have a good point and I need to listen to them and head that direction. And then sometimes, uh, sometimes like I'm actually the one who sees what needs to happen. Like that's why I founded the company. Like that's why, like I'm the one setting the vision for it. And like, if they all saw what I saw, then they would be the ones who had started a company like this. Right. And so for me, there's like, there's the like, there's the tension sometimes between enough humility to enough humility to listen to the friends and advisors and peers and and people and then enough confidence to say no i've i've put in the work i've considered those opinions and even given all that i'm still going to go a different direction than what they see because i i feel like i see something different can you talk about 
navigating <laughs> navigating choosing your vision versus the advice of others this is not uh this is not abnormal at all actually this is a feature not a flaw right like the whole purpose of building this ecosystem around you is you're going to have advisors. You're not always going to agree with them, but that would really help you to be intellectually honest, which is like, yes, I heard these five things and I've considered all five of them and I am still choosing to do this thing instead, which in most cases increases confidence. Uh, um, and even if you mess up, you have to realize that the part of the process, which is like you considered those five things already, you know, if you would have done any five of those, you could already see that, yeah, it wasn't really going to work out. So it's the sixth thing that now you crossed off your list and like, okay, well, the sixth way didn't work out as well. And it's fine. Like this happens in work, in business all the time. Everyone's figuring stuff out. Uh, so I kind of see it as primarily this is important. Like I think if the founder loses confidence, like that is the most detrimental thing that could happen. You're kind of like playing extreme sports at the end of the day. And if you have no self-confidence, it's going to be very hard because you're going to just like go wherever the wind takes you and that leads to chaos and nowhere. Uh, so I think, I feel like the whole ecosystem is set up in a way so that when you make a decision, you have high conviction towards it. And it doesn't always necessarily have to be what your advisors or your friends or your peers have told you or given you advice on. You could very well chart a path and pick your own path. But now you've considered and weighed more options and opinions, which in most cases should add more clarity versus more noise. So in a way, yeah, I think it's totally a part of the process and it's in most cases expected that the founder would still probably decide to do something else uh, if that's what it came down to. But now they just have more voices and scenarios that they've considered than they would have otherwise. Okay, I like that answer. Uh, the, the next one that you brought up, um, you talked about product market fit in a, in a large market that could actually produce these kind of numbers, right? Um, you know, we hear about product market fit all the time. So many people define it differently. Uh, in your mind, how can someone recognize product market fit versus knowing that we're lying to ourselves that we think we have it? Help me with the intellectual honesty about whether I do or don't have product market fit and, and how I continually improve my product market fit. Uh, the early indications of product market fit are actually pretty straightforward. Uh, people find a lot of value in your product and they want to use it and pay for it. It's just that straightforward. It's like, you don't have to remind somebody to use it. You don't have to call somebody like, hey, did you try this today? Like, what did you think? But it's like, no, yeah, I've been using it. And here are the five things that suck with this, right? It's like, as soon as you have that, you know, you have product market fit because not only are they using this product, it's getting in their way in some areas so much that they feel compelled to tell you what you got to fix. Um, and that is absolute product market fit at the end of the day, which is like you literally get something that you put in hands of your customers and these people are telling you, yeah, I find value in this. Thank you. And can you help me with these five things that are currently not working as well in the product and, and help me fix it? Uh, most people, most people get into the cycles of oh, I just haven't put it in the hands of enough people that probably, like, there's some truths to it, but it's more so, like, are you putting it in the hands of the right people, not a lot of people? Uh, so, like, is your, is your ideal customer profile defined appropriately? And that's a very intellectually valid exercise to do. But if you feel like you've defined your uh, um, ICP and you've put the product in, in their hands 
and they're not using it enough and don't care about it enough, you don't have product market fit yet. And you have to keep on changing something and tweaking something. It could very well be your market. It could very well be your product. It could very well be a bunch of these different things. It's less likely that it's the product because if you get into the right market and put something in their hands that is creating value, they will start using it. And even if product has bugs and issues with it, they will let you know very vocally, which is like, hey, this is the shiny thing, but it's just not working with it. And you got to fix it. Um, so I don't think there is, if you're having to like literally squint your eyes to find product market fit, you haven't found it yet. Because when you find it, it's just very obvious. You know exactly, okay, my, this is my customer. They find value. Now, the, the less obvious thing is how big does that market get? And that's where founder conviction really comes in, which is uh, if you're an expert in the market, which is you've really understood the market dynamics quite well, you really understand the industry you're in really well, then you can extrapolate things and say, like, this is essentially what I'm doing as well, right? I'm saying fintechs are my early adopters, but if I can make my infrastructure very simple, I feel like it's going to be in the hands of everyone because I intricately know what the value of the product is and I know how far beyond it can get. And some of that is science and some of that is art. You can make it more and more of a science as you become more so an expert in the market uh, 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 that you're sitting in. So like the second part's hard and I understand that. But the first one, you don't have to squint your eyes. It hits you in the face and you know right away. I'm going to have to rewatch this. I'm going to have to write that down. I'm going to have to think about that because <laughs> I feel like there's a lot in that. Um, and that I like the simplicity of like, if you don't need to remind them, if they're using it every day and then telling you how it's getting in their way. Like, I, I appreciate how tangible that is. Yeah, it's honestly that straightforward. Like product market fit is very easy to know. Much harder to know how big that market is. Okay, next. Uh, recruiting a great team. Well, I, I want to break this one down. When it comes to identifying those super high performing people that you want on the team, I want to know any guidance you have there. And then second, we'll talk about once you've picked them, how to get them to pick you. Once you've picked them, how, okay, so that's on the recruiting side. Um, yeah. So how do you identify, um, how do you recruit? I will say the most obvious and honest thing about recruiting, you only, good, you only get good at it over time once you have enough data. Um, so rarely people are really good at it from the very beginning. Um, now there are things you can do to maximize the likelihood that you're good at this. Uh, and I can tell you what I do. Um, uh, the first thing I look for is, uh, is the person honest and smart? And what I really mean by that is, I was having this conversation with one of our managers the other day, and then they were like, yeah, I have to like make sure I have the right panel review and this whole code review process built out um, so that I can really assess their technical abilities. And I was like, I don't, I don't really think your, your job is as much to do that as it is to pick somebody who is smart and honest because honest people will automatically tell you if they're the right fit for the job or not. And if, and if they're smart, then they usually learn things they don't know as well and kind of like do that pretty quickly. Um, so I found that those two things are very important, which is you feel like the person's honest and genuine, they're self-aware, uh -uh, and they show curiosity and intellect to be able to like really do something well and really learn things because it turns out in a startup, you're always kind of like learning some new stuff. Um, so that's like the base of everything. It doesn't matter if you're trying to hire an individual contributor. It doesn't matter if you're trying to hire a manager. It doesn't matter if you're trying to hire a director, a C-suite person. Um, then the second piece that you do to really de-risk any of this is see uh, uh, in their past, 
have they performed these kinds of responsibilities before? And how, how well did they do at those? How well did they succeed at it? Uh, um, how long was their tenure? Can they deeply describe what, what they did well, what they didn't do well? What did they learn from the things that they didn't do well? Um, as I start going to people in the management role, so, so managers, directors, VPs, C-suite, I, I, I also look for, do they exhibit signs of being data-driven and having the right frameworks that are needed in the role, right? Um, is it obvious to them if you're a manager, yeah, I got to meet my team one-on-one on a regular basis, not only because somebody asked me to do so, it's because that's the only way I would know what they're struggling with and how I can help them and motivate them and all these different things. So like you start seeing, do people understand the implicit value of the organizational structure and operations? And if the answer is they do, then you know, yes, they've not only read a book and performed these responsibilities, but they've internalized why those things are valuable at the end of the day. And then you can de-risk and de-risk and de-risk, right? So like at the core of it, I start with those two things, which is honesty and self-awareness. That's in one bucket for me. And then intelligence, which is extremely important. And then as I start going kind of like to a different level, I start looking at, have they done these things before? Do they have the right operational clarity and understanding of the whys and the what's? What are you going to do and why are you doing it? And then do they show enough malleability as to when things didn't work out, they had to pivot and change and try something new and have they done that, have they succeeded in the past? And the final thing you need to de-risk is talk to people they've worked with before to see how was it to work with them uh, and what do those people say? And usually those frameworks really, really help you. Um, and then you start seeing enough of those and then you're like, okay, well, now I also have a good sense of uh, how, how am I supposed to feel, right? Like uh, sometimes people just try to convince themselves that, that person was good enough. I think, no, 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 you don't need good enough. She needs someone that you're like, this is it. Like, this is the person I really want to hire. Uh, and giving yourself the authority to feel that way just takes time, which is like, yeah, uh, because you, as, as a founder, you always kind of like feel the pressure of being like, I want to hire quickly and I want to hire the right person. And then sometimes you squint your eyes on the right person. Uh, and then like now I've come to a point where I'm like, okay, it's better to not hire than to hire someone who's not good. <laughs> um, so now I, I have more patience, which is kind of like, and people build that over time because when they don't hire the right person, they know what that does. Um, it's almost better to not have that person than, than, than to have it. Um, so then that gives you enough flexibility and like it makes it okay for you to be able to say, if I'm not sold on the candidate, I'm hired. But those are things that I do. Like most of them are pretty straightforward and helps you de-risk uh, the risk of hiring the wrong candidate. Yeah. Um, and then let's talk maybe at these higher levels, a C-suite level or something like this. When it comes to attracting them, what do you feel like has been effective? You, when you think about like the best people you've been able to get to come to the team, what do you feel like it was that helped you get them to, uh, to magnetically want to come over you guys? It's very important to be able to articulate the vision, the passion, and the mission of the company and the market and the opportunity really well, which is why should they be in this market why does it matter? And why should they be in this market with you? And that's a function of, we have the best vision, best execution, 
we really need you. You're going to add tons of value, tremendous value. We're here. You can take it here because everyone wants to feel like they actually are going to add some positive value to the company in a big way or a small way, depending on whatever role they're in. Uh, but people want to contribute and do positive things. Um, and this is like a really, really good market to be in. And then the final thing is like, and this is where it's less about selling. It's more about like uh, uh, a match. It's like, do you get, do you two get along? It's super important, especially like for me and my sister to be like, okay, I really, really get along with them. Um, so getting along with them. And then once you get, once you get along with someone, you're like, yeah, I really got, I really need this person on my team. The passion in selling really comes out. You can sell your business well. You can sell the vision well. You're going to sell kind of like the team well. And one thing that I use constantly is my team to sell. And she's like, hey, come to these other people that are awesome and are here. Um, uh, and I found that to be exceptionally, exceptionally helpful. Uh, uh, once people are sold on the market, the vision, uh, the execution, they really buy into it. They find you to be a person they would enjoy working with. Then the biggest thing that sells them is your team, which is when the, your team gets in front of them and talks to them. And, uh, uh, that I've seen that have the biggest amount of impact for any candidate that I'm really trying to pull into the company because uh, they see other good people here. They're like, okay, well, we should do. Especially the part about the team and like, it makes me question, like, are there ways that I can continually be making our team more excited to be here? And like, you know, is that really, I question myself thinking, no, I probably can be doing better of like making sure our, our t like I'm doing those same things with our existing team members and that we're having it like a continuous improvement process inside the business of making this the place they want to be, you know? I think that's very important. I think, um, I've found it to be that people are usually willing to work really hard if they feel supported and heard and they feel like they're, they're partnering with you, not that they're in opposition with you or they're working for you, but it's more so they're partnering with you. Um, and look, I, I also agree with all the traditional stuff, which is like, yeah, you got to like respect CEO at the end of the day, which is a decisions made that's not like your decision, but we're making it as a company, you have to go along with that. Uh, and all those things are true. And people are usually totally fine with it by the time they feel like you're listening, you're partnering, uh, um, you're kind of like, you're making rational decisions and then you're plugging the gaps in areas that they feel like for me to be able to be successful, I really want to make sure that a really good person sits in this role and really executes well, right? So a part of building the leadership team and your whole management team is also kind of just like listening to them and making sure you're empowering them with one, building their, their own teams and also helping them build areas that they're really dependent on uh, for them to be successful and feeling like they're working with you, not in opposition to you. That's great. Uh, maybe, maybe one more uh, thing that's come up a number of times is a lot of people talk about like the CEO or the founder's role to make sure the business doesn't run out of money. Uh, when it comes to fundraising, what's a principle? I mean, you raised tens of millions of dollars. What's a principle that you would share with us? I see it two ways. One, it doesn't run out of money since making enough revenue, but over time you don't have to fund it and fund it and fund it. Um, the secret to fundraising is not very different to the secret to kind of like recruiting a really good executive team. Um, your passion really matters. Your vision really matters. The market you're in really matters. Product market fit really matters. Building a really good executive team really matters. 
and demonstrating growth in the right numbers and metrics, revenue margin, all these different things. And depending on the stage, it changes. Um, um, those things really, really matter. And if you can tell a really good story for all those pieces combined, um, you used to be able to raise raise money versus not. Obviously, this market's like bananas, but like generally, um, those pieces are really helpful. And even this market isn't like bananas, bananas. It's just that um, what used to like here's a really good example, right? Like last year, if you had interest from customers, you would have gotten funded. Then it went to no, they had to be your customers before you got funded. Then it went to, they had to be your customers and giving you revenue before you really got funded. And now they have to be a customer giving you revenue. And it's been months since they've been giving you revenue before you get funded. So it's just, the market's just increased in skepticism. And there's not a lot of like forward running multiples that have been given. It's more kind of like what's in your PNL is what you're getting rewarded for, not anything else. Uh, so the market just become a little bit more conservative, but the same principles still apply. The market, the vision, the execution, and demonstration of traction and growth. Right now, it's in your PNL, but it used to be that uh, indicators before hitting your PNL were quite sufficient last year as well. I peppered you with a bunch of questions. What did I miss? What What didn't I ask that I should have? Well, probably why am I doing this? Like that. Yeah. Which is kind of like the pitch for why people should probably do financial services generally. Uh, I. Uh, when I came to America, I could not open up a bank account. And I spent about like my first innings in Synapse, uh, really making it so that uh, anyone uh, who came to America could open up an account pretty easily online and feel like a second class citizen um, uh, and feel like you were looking, you, you were being looked at with skepticism while you were doing it. So they, uh, a first part of Synapse was like pretty straightforward. I thought uh, it was a very, very valuable mission uh, which is just ensure that people have access to financial services uh, within within America. And it doesn't matter if you just came here, it doesn't matter if you were born, but you didn't have credit score. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you should just be able to get a bank account and not, not, not feel like shit when you get it. Um, and now I continue to do this because I feel like uh, we were able to have a meaningful impact on that problem. Uh, but there's this other big problem now, which is uh, people around the world don't have access to adequate financial services. And it's not as simple as that some people don't have a bank account, that even people who have bank accounts in some cases have high inflation, high taxation, uh, um, are just reliant on kind of like not so sound regulatory practices all the way down to not so sound financial and fiscal policies in the country. Um, Venezuela is a really good example of this, like high 80%, 90% inflation. Sri Lanka is a good example of this, where the, where the government defaulted. Um, and now I do this because I, I just want to, I think now that's a very powerful product, which is if we can make it so that everyone uh, uh, is able to hold USD, which by the way, like almost all rich people do and almost all companies and governments do. So it's only regular people that don't hold USD. So it's like very bananas. Um, so our goal is to now give people uh, who don't live in the US also USD arbitrage so that they can hold USD, spend in USD, uh, uh, get credit in USD, invest in USD. Uh, because right now we feel like this is this is the safest uh, um, currency. And 
I'm sure over time that might change. And if that changes, making sure we always pick uh, uh, the currency that is most stable for people and, and, and help them bank there. So that's why, that's why I do what I do. Oh, what a great mission. You think about, um, you know, the ability to relieve unnecessary suffering by, I mean, it's hard enough to make the money in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Having the ability to hold on to it or to have to be, still be worth what you paid for it. But, you know, like what a, what a great service. Yeah. No, I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's usually really fun and energizing to do things that help people um, and are cool because cool things are fun. So like this is, I feel like that's what we do and it's fun. Okay. I want to make an introduction for you. We've had, the, we had this great woman on the show. She, um, she was in Kabul when the Taliban invaded last year, barely made it out, family members murdered. Um, her and a bunch of schoolgirls on buses were trying to get to the airport. Taliban wouldn't let them back and forth for a week. At the end, they kind of got kidnapped where they weren't allowed to get into the airport or leave. And she's the, she called the Americans and figured out stuff and basically saved 150 oh, wow. of her, her classmates. Okay. Wow. And yeah, amazing. She's, she's been living with uh, one of the, so our charity child rescue association, one of our volunteers is this great guy from the classified units of special operations named Al Buford. He's been on the show. He and his wife let her and her sister move in with them. Her family was stuck in refugee camps in the Middle East. And, and so we had her on the show and her big thing is she wants to uh, learn tech and specifically fintech so she can go back home to Afghanistan. She's like, the Taliban are so bad at ruling, they're, they're going to screw this up and, and yeah. we'll be able to go back and help my country people. She's like, specifically, the Hawalan network is so corrupt and it's so hard for women to be able to make their own choices with men controlling all the money. She's like, I just want to learn enough tech to build a fin fintech product for Afghan women to not be so abused by the system and by men. And so we've been helping her. We, this year, we've been fundraising for her. Uh, she just started it at Virginia Tech this, this semester. Awesome. She started on that process. But I need to tell her about Synapse and how she needs to be building her project and her program on top of your infrastructure. I'd, I'd love to meet her. Like, that sounds like such a phenomenal journey and a story. And I completely agree. I think, like, there's this really clear product idea that I think is probably going to be better uh, uh, in the future. It's like the self-custody wallet, which is something that sits in your phone. Uh, you have the keys. Uh, no one else does. And you just have, like, stable coin. And uh, it just works. And you can transact with everything. Um and I do think in countries like Afghanistan, also North Korea and other places, I think that would be probably one of the most single, most uh, enabling and democratizing forces um, that would exist, like more than Twitter or something like that. Yeah, so I'd love to speak with her. Yeah, yeah her name is Asma Paikir. Uh, anybody, anybody either watching this on YouTube or listening on podcast, you guys go back and listen to the episodes with Asma. But uh, okay, I'm going to connect the two of you. I, I know she would Thanks. love to meet you. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's talk yeah. about the company website and any of the new initiatives that you'd send people to first. Yeah, I think kind of the two things. Um, if you really want to build something cool in financial services, please go and check us out. We're at synapsefi.com. Um, uh, you can build deposit credit crypto products. Um, one of the new products that we launched that I briefly kind of mentioned in the pod as well is Global Cash that enables uh, developers to be able to build USD-based custody accounts for people who don't even live in the U.S. Uh, we've been super excited about that product, um, given what's happening in the market right now, it's, it's, it's been phenomenally well received. 
So go and check it out. Look at it on our website. Reach out to us uh, if we can help. Uh, anyhow, we would we would love to. Okay, great. Um, and then it, follow you on LinkedIn or Twitter. Or where, where are the best places to follow you? Yeah, like I think uh, uh, in in both my handles, pretty much the same. It's just my first name, Sankat, S-A-N-K-A-E-T. Uh, so find me on LinkedIn, find me on Twitter, uh, whichever one uh, you find value in. Uh, I I usually don't tweet, but I'm pretty active on DM. So when people message me, I, I usually reply back. What do you want to leave people with today? Just kind of like work on things that make you really excited um, and things you can obsess over and not stop thinking about. Um, and success usually come. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, probably that. Take this work on things you really care about. And I think you'll be successful eventually. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for making so much time today. Thanks, Jess. Really appreciate it. Okay, bye, everyone.